At the end of last week's session, we were discussing that it is a great temptation to insist to relate Christianity with the ever-changing political systems. What's the reason for that? The reason is because we are victims of gluttony and we go after every politician who promises to put a silver spoon in our mouth wanting to bring paradise from heaven to earth. And in the process, we wrote the church and the gospel behind these political systems to be pulled and dragged every which way. Again, in the first three centuries of Christianity, the church remained independent and impeccable. The Christian remained a Christian regardless of the political system. If he would happen to be drafted as a soldier in the Roman army, and at that time, uh, paganism was the religion, basically idolatry, again, the Christians did not refuse to join the army. They did serve. In the army of Rome, the Roman Empire, the Babylon of the Revelation, the Christians would be Roman soldiers. If we read the life of the 40 martyrs, we will be amazed how they answer that they are soldiers. Yes, they're soldiers, but they're first Christians. They believe in Christ first, and after Christ, they give their loyalty to the earthly ruler, whoever he may be, Nero or Caligula or Maximinian, and they do their job well. But as long as the earthly ruler does not go against their heavenly ruler, Christ. Now, if the state would ask them to reverse their loyalty, now we have a big problem. No, Christ comes first. And after Christ, the earthly authorities. If you ask me to reverse this order of loyalty, then I must tell you that I'm ready to die. This is the crystal clear truth. This is how St. James instructs the poor and the oppressed who find themselves suffering and afflicted in the hands of the rich. He wants them to be long-suffering, so he will repeat the idea of long-suffering. We have a beautiful example once again when St. Paul is giving his apology to King Agrippa, and he's telling him, King Agrippa, please listen to me with long-suffering, makrothimos. Please be patient with me. Not necessarily patient. Again, the, the proper word is makrothimia, meaning, yes, you can stop listening to me, you're the king, but I'm asking you to persevere, to listen to me. And here in chapter 5, verse 8, St. James uses the same term. You too be long-suffering and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. This is very important in the daily life of every Christian to constantly keep well-focused on the coming of the Lord, which is very near. This is and should always be the focus of our thoughts. The Lord is coming, 
And even if the end of history may not be in my days, the Lord is coming for me at the end of my life. So the Lord is near any day. St. Paul says we have no permanent city here, but we are seeking the one to come. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble from impatience. When, when will things change? How long must we wait? Do not grumble so you will not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Again, the coming of the Lord, the element of eschatology is very important in the life of the church. So the judge is at the door, meaning that our life is so short. Our saints know this type of thing very well. And they take every precaution even at peaceful times, to mistreat their very bodies, to discipline, abuse their flesh, always looking at comfort as a menace to spirituality, fearing that they could transfer in their minds the kingdom of heaven here on earth. My friends, this is what we have done. As Western Christians, Western Christianity has transferred the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Ecumenism is trying to transfer the kingdom of heaven here on earth by simply wanting peace on earth to be able to live well and luxuriously without any problems at all, even though the Lord said that if you live in this world, you're going to have persecution because I was persecuted. This was also the big error of the Latin church and the popes who did not keep their eyes in the heavenly kingdom, but they also wanted to rule the entire earth. In other words, they want to enjoy an earthly kingdom, a kingdom here on earth, like most of the heretics. No, the Orthodox saints very carefully adopted a life of discomfort. The true Orthodox does not allow himself to go beyond some boundaries. He's afraid to cross over. And our church, acting most wisely, has set these boundaries. For instance, when we fast Wednesday and Friday, year-round, when we fast during the periods of Lent, during Christmas, 40 days, during Easter, 40 days, the fast of the apostles, and the fast of August, of the Dormition of the Theotokos, all these fasts are designed to discipline us. So when the animal inside of us begins to take off, is getting ready to run wild, then fasting comes and serves as the reins, the reins of the rider, to say, halt, slow down, you're going to fast. In other words, when a person begins to get momentarily lax, thinking, I have plenty of food, plenty of goods, then the voice of fasting spells out to him, you have plenty, but today you will eat nothing. You will fast, and you will not be able to eat all these things just because you have them. And fasting is reminding him the virtue of struggle and discomfort. Isn't this the spirit of our church? 
isn't this the spirit of our gospel? My friends, if we want to be sincere, this is the reality of things. Brothers, as an example of forbearance in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The Lord uses the same example on his ninth beatitude at the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and accuse you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets suffered. They suffered tremendous persecutions. Hamas, prophet Elijah, Isaiah, Moses, they suffered. About Moses we read in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He chose against earthly glory and riches, but he wanted to live in discomfort. He wanted to live with the people of God because he wanted to take part in the life of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ before Christ? Certainly. A life of the cross. My friends, we mentioned this before. The uncreated energy of the cross of Christ existed even before Christ and can be found in the Old Testament. And Moses is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Moses desires the life of discomfort. He wants to suffer with the people of God because he had his eyes set on the kingdom to come, the eternal glory. Moses could have been the successor to the Pharaoh in Egypt, the ruler of Egypt, but he chose not a kingdom of this world. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Again, here's a statement that the world can never understand. It is very scandalous. In a world where easy money, easy life, luxury, and comfort characterize success and blessedness, but the world of God, the Word of God, calls blessed those that persevere. Blessed are those that show patience patients under pressure, any kind of trial or affliction. We all know the story of Job, his trials, his misfortunes. He was extremely wealthy. He lost it all. He lost his wealth, his children, his health, gets no support from his wife who advises him to curse God, and the attempt of his three friends to comfort him failed miserably, but he persevered. He stayed firm in these extreme temptations with superhuman stamina. The perseverance of Job, which you have heard, remains unparalleled. But we also have seen the end of the story, how the Lord's compassion restored everything to Job, blessing him exceedingly to the end, to the end of his earthly life and glorifying him forever here on earth and much more in heaven. 
one thing is for sure. No matter how great the promoters of the new world order may sound, their dream will end up as a nightmare. Injustice will prevail along with sin, and the prince of the world will continue to lead the world towards his destination, which is hell. To us Christians, for us Christians, St. Paul says there is no permanent city, but we have our eyes transfixed on the city to come, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. We are not here to change the world. People will go on living the life of pleasure and satisfaction of their egotism. We will do what we can to help a few willing souls in our immediate environment, and that's all. That's all we can do. And since the world will not change, then we must persevere and go on persevering through a life of trials from the hostility of the world. St. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this world unworthy, nothing compared to the things that await us the things that are about to come in heaven, the glory that will be revealed to us, my friends. If we maintain this outlook in our daily walk, then we can say that we have the Spirit of Christ. We must live with one goal in mind and one purpose, which is the kingdom of God. And with this standard, we must measure all the things of the world. And now we come to chapter 5, verse 12, where we will begin somewhat of a new topic. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not in heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. The subject of the oath is always a pressing one, not only in our daily lives where we are compelled to be sworn in in order to participate in the court system and in other public positions, but also when we swear with the intent to become more believable. Of course, in the Old Testament, the use of the oath itself was not forbidden, but what was punishable was taking a false oath, committing the act of perjury. Now, what is oath? I take an oath when I call upon God as my witness. I swear to God. Initially, this is the biblical definition of an oath. The phenomenon of the oath is quite ancient, and many ancient civilizations have used the oath. The ancient Greeks would say by Zeus or by Athena. In other words, by God or by or I swear to God that I believe in, again, meaning that for what I'm about to state, what I'm about to tell you, I present God as my witness. So swearing is nothing new. It is a phenomenon of global dimensions. And also the Judeo-Christian tradition has been using the oath. And the reason that people swear is because they want to be believed. Perjury or false oath is when someone calls God to be his witness, but his testimony is false, full of lies. We also have the case of the oath that is broken, 
and not upheld to swear that you will do such and such thing and eventually you do not do it. Perjury and also the breaking of an oath were punishable in the Old Testament. A true oath, however, was allowed, as we mentioned before. But our Lord, who perfected the law, mentions in one of his Gospels, you heard from your fathers not to swear falsely. I tell you this, do not swear at all. Do not take an oath at all, not by heaven, because it is the throne of God, not by the earth, nor by the city of the great king. The great king is Yahweh, and he has his temple in Jerusalem, which means you cannot swear by anything, not even by your own head, because nothing belongs to you. And the Lord uses the example that we cannot change the color of a single hair of our own head, meaning that our body does not belong to us. These words, these words of the Lord seem to become more clear if we realize that in different countries, swearing takes on different forms and different expressions. For example, in Greece, people swear on their eyes or their children or their head. And it is very common for a mother to say, I swear on the lives of my children, or I swear on my sight, or I swear on the grave of my parents, meaning that if I don't tell you the truth, I put the lives of my children on the line, or I hope to lose my sight. We do have an expression similar to these in English, cross my heart and hope to die. And often small children use this type of thing in their attempt to become believed and in the process they cross their fingers behind their backs. And of course this is an attempt to break the bond of the oath. Well, the Lord says, no, you have no jurisdiction over any of these body parts. You do not own your own body, and you especially do not own your own children, or your eyes, or your hands, or your legs. These things do not belong to you. If our oath would be heard, and we lost an eye, or an arm, or a leg in an accident, Will we be able to recover these parts? So the Lord is saying, do not use as surety any of these parts just to force someone to believe you because you will be condemned by the New Testament law. The Jews had the habit to swear by the heaven or by the, the earth or by their head. So St. James is quoting the Lord when he says, do not swear by heaven or by the earth because they simply do not belong to you. Now why we should not swear at all in the New Testament, since the old law was allowing the act of the oath? As we mentioned repeatedly, we now have the new law, the perfect law of the gospel, and we also have a new people under God and the new Israel, the body of Christ, that is presumably under the perfect law. The new people, the Christians, are a perfect people. And the man who is a member of the new Israel, again, for a man of this caliber, it would be inconceivable for this person to lie. The believer in Jesus Christ does not lie. 
the believer, once again, in the time of the New Testament, who is a baptized Christian, for this believer, it is inconceivable to speak lies. Now, we're all baptized Christians today, at least in our congregations, and we certainly do lie. We lie a great deal. We lie left and right, and at the workplace, at home, at the market. And we even lie at places where lying would be hard to imagine. Some of us even lie during confession. Father Athanasius attests to this, and this used to trouble him a great deal, especially in his early years. He says, I could never understand how someone could fabricate lies even during holy confession. Why did you even come to confession if you're going to lie? Not just to hide the truth, which is also a lie, but to fabricate lies, to ask him, did you do this or that? And he would say, no, no, I, I didn't, only to find out a little later that he did. Now, why do you need to come to confession if you are planning to lie? This is what's so difficult to grasp, the nerve of some people. Once again, we as Christians today, generally speaking, we do lie. But it is inconceivable for a true believer who has grasped the true gospel, the, the gospel and the perfect law, a believer who's a carrier of this per perfect law to lie. Above all, brothers, do not swear, means that you must be so truthful, so honest, so it would be impossible for you to lie, which would never get to a point where you must utilize an oath. This is the first reason why the oath is unnecessary and useless for the Christian. The second reason is what we discussed earlier. In other words, since nothing belongs to us, we cannot, we cannot swear by anything, by our children or different body parts. A third reason is that we have absolutely no right to call upon the name of God for no reason and in vain. God is not our equal to take his name in our daily conversations. God is above and beyond all created things. And when we swear by the earth or the heavens or whatever creature, we are indirectly swearing in the name of God because everything belongs to him. But you must let your yes be yes and your no be no. But you may tell me, but people don't believe me. If they don't believe you, it is possible that you taught them to lie. In the case of uh, children, when the phone rings and you may tell them to cover for you, work the workplace and your relationship with others. So how would anyone believe you? Now you may say, well, no, this is not the case. I never, ever lied to anyone. If you never lie, then you will say this, my friend, my brother, my employer, I'm telling you this, and this is the truth to the best of my knowledge, and it is up to you to believe me or not. If we respond like this, people will soon realize that we speak the truth. And usually, when we're people of truth, 
we will very seldom find ourselves in a position to swear. Usually, people that swear very easily and very often do so because they lie a lot and they want to reinforce their believability. Again, a person that is ready to swear for anything, that person usually lies. We must be very careful because we will be condemned, St. James says. Not only St. James, but the Lord. So if we swear, we will fall under condemnation. There's no reason for the Christian to use a thousand excuses to justify their actions. A short and sweet yes or no will do. For instance, someone may say, I didn't see you at this certain meeting. I thought you said you would be there. Answer, I'm sorry, I was not able to make it. Something came up. Now, if we have a good excuse, or a true one, of course, we will mention it to inform the others, partly to put the subject to rest. But let's not get into the habit of trying to provide excuse upon excuse to justify our actions. We can simply say, I'm sorry, things did not work out as I planned. We said, God willing, God did not allow it. Many times, if we're very careful, we can avoid lying or st stretching the truth or having to go on and on explaining things. In the cassettes of Deuteronomy, Father Athanasius mentions uh, an example. He mentioned that a gentleman who was very well dressed, escorted by several other people, came to the monastery and uh, he goes right up to the fathers and Father Athanasius and he asks right away, the first question was, what is the income of the monastery? Of course, this is quite rude. The answer of Father Athanasius, excuse me, sir, don't you have anything more important to ask us? Like, how is the spirituality here? Um, what kind of relics do you have here? Of course. The gentleman got red in the face, very embarrassed, and I'm sure he never asked a question like that again. There's several ways that we can respond to question, questions like this where we do not have to give out information that we do not want to give out, and uh, we don't have to lie. Or somebody can call and simply say, where is Father Athanasius? Excuse me, he's not here. Where is he? Well, he's not here at the present time. Isn't this enough for you, sir? He's not here. And that's it. Final. We do not have to go into all kinds of stories. Well, how about swearing in court or being sworn in for public service or sworn in to be an officer or to be the president of the United States? Well, there are no loopholes when it comes to the perfect law of God. A young nun in the country of Greece refused to take the oath when asked in as a witness, and she served five to six years in prison, according to Metropolitan of Florida, His Excellency Augustinos Candiotis. The developed Christian will abide by the law of Christ and honor it above any other law. 
It is plain and simple. In court, we will tell the judge, Your Honor, my Lord and my God instructs me not to swear. Several months ago, a certain brother was greatly troubled by this very serious commandment of the Lord. He happens to be in the business of renting homes, and it is not impossible to find himself in court once or twice a year. Again, he was greatly troubled and discussed the possibility of even changing professions to avoid this evil. After much prayer, he decided to visit the local judge to discuss his dilemma. The answer, in the United States of America, you do not have to swear in any court. You do not have to even touch a Bible or swear to God. And this is true all the way to the Supreme Court. You simply express to the judge that swearing is against your Christian beliefs and you wish to simply take an affirmation of per title 42 paragraph 327 of the legal code. An affirmation is simply a promise that what you're about to say represents the truth. You simply promise to tell the truth. Let's hope that a law such as this never changes and we sincerely hope that none of our listeners ever take another oath in court or anywhere else but insist on an affirmation. Is oath ever permissible? Yes, St. Paul takes an oath in the Acts of the Apostles and some of the other epistles. So did our Lord. But in situations of great importance of dogma, extremely important and always after the consent of our spiritual father. For instance, let's say that someone is murdered and the wrong person is caught, apprehended, and accused falsely. If you know the truth, you must walk forward and help and free that person even if you have to take an oath. And after you take an oath, you will do a penance. And once again, these are very, very limited situations, and it is necessary to have spiritual counsel when we're dealing with this type of thing. And now we continue with chapter 5, verse 13. Is any, of, any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him chant songs of praise. This makes for excellent advice, and this is very nice indeed. Is any one of you afflicted? Are you undergoing a trial? Keep praying. Is any one of you feeling especially good? Is any one of you feeling especially good? Let him chant. So, as we can see here, St. James is referring to two extreme psychological states. The state of discomfort, suffering, affliction, and the opposite state, which is comfort, relaxation, and generally the time when things go well. Things couldn't have been better. Both of these states being found in the realm of the Christian life and have nothing to do with the affliction or good times found outside of Christ 
and in the area of sin. So a Christian brother may have nice feelings, feelings of peace, feels calm, peaceful, feels wonderful. Or a brother may be undergoing a strong temptation, and usually when a soul is feeling an intense temptation, this soul begins to concentrate and assume a state of alertness. This is one of the reasons why God may send a trial to keep the, the soul at a state of alertness, which otherwise would be laxed spiritually. So the soul that feels this pressure will automatically begin to pray more, and the result is to stay closer to God. This does not mean that we should only pray in times of trouble. We must pray always. We should understand this very clear by now, very clearly, that a Christian must pray at least morning and night, and not to mention that we should pray incessantly. We pray always our standard prayers, was guided by our spiritual father. This is a given. But the meaning of this verse here is that at times of trouble, we intensify our prayers. We increase our prayers. We cry out to the Lord. At a time when I don't feel very well, let's say I'm losing my balance, I feel the waves of the temptation, I feel the fiery darts of the evil one, then I will lock myself in my room. I will kneel and begin to pour my heart out to the Lord, cry out to the Lord, so he can come to fight my enemies, as the psalmist says. So when we feel bad, we must turn to prayer. Use prayer as a weapon. When we feel good and content, on the other hand, we are in the mood to chant, sing praises to the Lord. By this, St. James does not mean that you should not chant when you are in trouble or not pray when you feel good. No, we may have Christians that have the strength to chant praises to the Lord during the hardest of times. Our martyrs and many of our saints, so many of them chanted and praised God while in flames or while being tossed to the lions or while being dismembered. They kept glorifying God with their last breath. But generally speaking and psychologically, at times of affliction, it is more natural to rely on prayer and during wonderful times, it is more natural to chant with joy. Another observation that we can make here is that St. James suggests that someone can chant all by themselves. Is someone happy? Chant. This suggests one person, which means that we do not need an entire congregation or a group of people to chant. On this subject, St. John the Chrysostom states, Learn how to chant, and you will see the beauty of the Spirit, because those that chant become full of the Holy Spirit, just like those that sing satanic songs, they become full of unclean spirits. Did we ever consider this, that when we sing non-spiritual songs, our soul becomes full of unclean and demonic spirits? I think we can understand this very well, when we see what happens to the victims of the rock and roll music, they become possessed. Not only in the extreme cases of the heavy metal concerts, which are clearly demonic, but the same evil spirits run rampant in the softer areas of rock music, called a disco or bluegrass country and western. Alcohol, drugs, immorality in general run rampant in that type of environment. 
someone does not need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that the fruits of this type of music have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And this type of behavior only glorifies Satan and the unclean spirits, the demons. And generally speaking, people that sing secular and worldly songs are under the energy of the unclean spirits. Some of our listeners will tend to disagree, especially since they themselves may enjoy some secular love songs or soft rock or oldies and so on. Well, this is, this is not our opinion. We are not making these things up. The same person that God entrusted to write the divine liturgy is saying these things, St. John the Chrysostom. St. Paul also comments on the subject in Ephesians 5.19. Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or odes, or this. But the fact is that St. Paul maintains that Christians can sing songs that have the seal of the Holy Spirit. This means that I can sing a song or a ballad or a poem about God. I don't always have to sing hymns of the church, but we can sing some general songs about the love of God or the wisdom of God, the glory of God. And these songs can actually make us full of the Holy Spirit. These songs can benefit us greatly. But St. Paul again in Ephesians 5.19 says, Speak to yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, chanting in your heart to the Lord. Singing and chanting. Chanting refers to the chanting that takes place in the church, whereas singing can take place anywhere outside of the church where Christians may meet. Also, this chanting or singing must be in the heart which means we must fully feel and understand what we are chanting. We must sing by the mouth and the heart. We must understand the meaning of the psalm or the hymn, and if we are going to sing some of the hymns of our worship services, we will only sing them in the music used and prescribed by our church, whether Byzantine, if we happen to use Byzantine music, or the traditional Russian Orthodox music or some form of traditional liturgical music. But again, we will chant or hymn our worship psalms or trabaria in the traditional way of the church. And while we're on the subject, we must mention that Christian rock is inexistent. There's no such thing. It is like saying Christian fornication or Christian adultery. Don't tell me that their words are biblical or scriptural or even orthodox. I'm aware of all that. The truth is that these groups do not serve Christianity. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, whether they realize it or not. The tone of their music does not lift up the soul. It rather uplifts sinful desires. Church music elevates. It elevates spiritually, unlike secular or modern music. Several years ago, a Christian rock band made it to one of our churches and we were invited to attend. Fortunately, I did not make it. And from what I understand, at the end of the presentation or program or concert, the faithful were clapping and moving to the rock tones of the music. Our Orthodox Russian brothers 
were flooded by born-again crusades after the fall of, commun of communism, and their message to all these Christian crusaders was, please send us some Bibles, if you will, but no more crusades, and please, no more of that Christian rock and roll. Our Russian brothers know very well that music that wakes up our lower instincts and sinful desires, music that makes our bodies move uncontrollably, this type of music can never have the seal of the Holy Spirit, regardless if the words are scriptural or biblical. Our traditional church music depresses the lower instincts, it numbs the passions, and it elevates the spirit. And this is the music that St. Paul refers to along with St. James. Is anyone, anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sings, sing songs of praise. Again, meaning songs that praise God by the traditional way of singing them. And these songs of praise or chants or hymns should be fully understood by the heart, and their final purpose would be to glorify the Lord, which would in turn bring us a great deal of joy. And now we continue with verse 14. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And I'm using the NIV in these verses. And in these two verses, we are provided with a strong basis for our sacrament of holy unction. Even though we have a number of other verses pertaining to this holy sacrament of our church, these two verses, again, are some of the most basic verses instituting our Holy Sacrament. Let's comment on these verses. Is any one of you sick? Let him call the presbyters of the church, not the elders, as the Protestant texts say, but the presbyters, meaning the priests. We should pray to God daily to have orthodox theologians and orthodox translators translate the Bible. After 100 years in this country, you would think our orthodox leadership would come up with an orthodox Bible. The evangelical orthodox under Father Gilliquist have provided us with an orthodox commentary of the New Testament and the Psalms. And we must commend them for their effort. This is a great start. However, the script itself is the King James Version, in other words, a Protestant version. Again, with millions of Greek Orthodox Christians, Russian Orthodox in the English-speaking countries, to our great misfortune, we have not succeeded as of yet to translate the Bible from the Greek original text by Orthodox translators. So we are forced to rely on the Protestant translations, which are full of mistranslations. Getting back to our subject, the Greek word presbyters has two meanings. In some instances, it means older people, those that are full of years. But the same word also happens to mean priest. So if anyone happens to be sick, let him invite the priests of the church to pray for him 
while anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers of the priests and their faith will save the sick person and the Lord will lift him from the bed of sickness. And if he has sinned, they will be forgiven unto him. His sins will be forgiven. For someone to be sick, it is not a pleasant state. Our church would not want to have her members to be afflicted with illnesses. The Lord healed the sick. Now, if we happen to have sick people, people with physical ailments, this is also allowed by God for reasons of discipline. We must be reminded, however, that when the Israelites were ready to depart from Egypt, listen to this. This is bigger than life, totally amazing. There were two million people, and Moses records in Exodus that there was not a single sick person. Let me give you a more practical picture. In the greater Lehigh Valley area, Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, let's say uh, Allentown, Bethlehem, assuming that we have close to 2 million people in 50 hospitals, imagine on one given day every single hospital bed to be empty, not a single admission, not a single illness. My friends, this is the power of God. God postponed and healed every illness so that people would be able to walk out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea. Another amazing miracle, for 40 years in the desert, their clothes or shoes remained incorruptible, unchanged. They did not wear out. Some of their bodies dissolved in the desert when they sinned. In one day, 23,000 died when they committed sexual immorality. But up to that point, their clothes and shoes did not wear out. God has made us for incorruption. Sin has brought corruption into the world. Death is a result of that sin. God did not create death. Jesus Christ did not have to die because he had no sin. Hades could not have held him because there was no sin in him which brings death. Christ died willfully and voluntarily. So God created, God created us young and beautiful, not to get old. This getting old business and dying will be permanently healed at the resurrection of the dead when our bodies will resurrect youthful, flawless, and incorruptible, full of glory. So illness is an element of this corruption, this unnatural state, and the church strives to help its members to heal them, to eliminate illness, because being ill or sick is certainly not unnatural or a good thing. Even though we must mention again that God may use the element of illness to discipline us and make us repent. So in a case of an illness, St. James is telling us to call the priests. Of course, if the parish only happens to have one priest, then one priest can validate the sacrament. We do not need to have many priests. One is enough. So let the priest pray on him or for him, meaning that the priest will lay their hands on him, and after they pray, they will anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So they should pray to God to make him well. How are we to understand this, especially since many times the physical condition of the person does not change? And if there's no such healing as we understand it, are we to assume that the sacrament has no power? Do we have a possibility where we perform the sacrament of baptism and the person does not become a Christian? No. Once someone is baptized, he is automatically a Christian. 
just like the divine liturgy when the liturgy is celebrated we always have the body and blood so here when the presbyters pray they pray for a total healing a complete healing which may or may not include physical healing healing does not always include the body so the priest will pray for physical healing but also they will pray for the brother to be filled with peace and patience in the case that God may want to or rather may not want to heal the person physically for reasons that only God knows. St. Paul was ill and he prayed to God two, three, four times for a healing and the Lord told him, No, I will not take this illness from you. My grace is enough for you. My strength is made complete in, in weakness. So I may have an illness and I pray to God over and over again and he does not heal me. Does this mean that the prayers of the priest of the church are in vain? Certainly not. I will be filled with many graces. I will be filled with peace and patience which will make me a champion in the face of illness worthy of a great reward just like in the case of Job. Also the prayers of the priest will help the doctor to come up with the proper diagnosis. Do we ever pray to God to illumine the doctor before we visit him? Not only for the diagnosis, but to make the proper choice of medicine. How many people today die and suffer and are in the mercy of the doctors and their drug companies? Also, in the case of surgery, we can pray to God to have the surgeon operate successfully. St. Nectarius, St. Raphael, Nicolaus and Irini, they will appear too faithful on the hospital bed. Let's not think that since we did not succeed miraculously, now we will try medicine. No, in the book of the Old Testament wisdom of Sirach, in chapter 38, the word of God says that you will pray, my child, and you will also go to the doctor because God gave the knowledge to the doctor to be able to study and diagnose. And God, again, may choose to heal you not miraculously, but through the doctor, and this does not become any less of a miracle. Also, the purpose of the prayer is to have the sins of the sick person forgiven. Which sins? And this, by the way, does not negate the sacrament of holy confession. No, absolutely not. But we will ask God to overlook the specific sin that happened to be the cause that gave birth to this illness, the sin that caused the man to become sick. And finally, the priests pray for the spiritual healing and the spiritual progress of the sick brother. This last one is the number one purpose. The number one purpose of the sacrament of holy unction is to have a spiritual healing and the physical healing is the last concern even though again the church prays for that, that for that type of thing as well but here we must be impressed with a detail the anointing of the ill person with oil why oil do we know that the disciples used oil in this fashion while the lord was with them they healed the sick with oil we read in Mark 6 verse 13 and the 12 disciples having gone out were preaching to people to repent and they were casting out demons and they were anointing many sick people with oil and they were healing them quite obviously with the instruction of the Lord 
which means that the holy unction is a sacrament instituted and founded by Christ himself. We must mention this because the Protestants today and always rejected this holy sacrament, which was instituted by Christ himself. The disciples of Christ obeyed him, obeyed him then and always. But what is the meaning of the oil? Does the oil have some kind of therapeutic qualities? Not necessarily. It is simply the material vehicle through which the Lord transports his grace for us. In other words, for us to receive peace or patience or a spiritual healing or a physical healing. These gifts or graces are transported through oil. It is simply a material carrier of the grace of God. This is why we use oil from the icon of the Theotokos, from the oil lamp, and not from the mazola ken that we use for salad. We use special oil from the vigil lamp because it happens to be the material vehicle of divine grace in this case. Just like the water becomes the vehicle of grace in the sacrament of baptism, and the stole of the priest, the epitrachilion, becomes the material carrier of the divine grace to forgive sins in holy confession. God wants it this way. God uses matter to send his grace to dearly show us that matter is his own creation. Everything belongs to God and everything will result in the glory of God. Again, we must clarify that the sin that caused the illness does not disappear, even though it may be healed somewhat. But the proper order is to go to holy confession first, and then have holy unction, if we want to keep the proper order, and then take holy communion. This is the proper order. So as we see here, there are certain conditions in order to receive the healing, like the prayer of the priest, the faith of the priest, and the calling upon the name of the Lord. It is most important here that we call upon the name of the Lord, which means that the Lord will perform the miracle. The Lord will lift him up, and not the priests, not the oil, not the number of the priests, which again means that behind the prayers of the priest and behind the oil is the power of the Most High God. And now we come to another point that St. James makes here in this paragraph. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And at this point, again, the Protestants come to tell us that here the Word of God says that you can confess your sins to one another, so you don't need confession. Not quite. Confessing our sins to one another, as St. James prescribes here, does not negate the sacrament of holy confession, which was instituted by the Lord himself. In this particular situation, we have no sacrament. This is a type of confession, a special and psychological instant. This type of confession is psychological in character. It can also serve as a form of counseling. For instance, when I share my insecurities or my downfalls or some of my concerns with a dear brother, with a trustworthy brother, I repeat with a mature 
spiritual brother, then I will be feeling much better. We all need a person to pour our heart out and now and then to share notes to get direction. I also take some weight off my shoulders. I can breathe easier when I discuss my problems with a close friend and again, we must stress with a spiritual person. This is highly important for our health. This can serve as a great healing for many people who end up in a hospital bed because of a plethora of psychosomatic illnesses, having no one to talk to, feeling down, depressed, feeling defeated, and mentally exhausted from the daily pressures. People today more than ever live under constant anxiety. The psychiatrist could use this as the number one source of advice. Talk about your problems, get them out of your system, discuss them or you will go crazy. You will end up with a nervous breakdown. Go and get counsel, talk things over. As Christians, we will discuss these things with our spiritual father, our father confessor, and also with our spiritual brothers, meaning the problems of our daily lives and not necessarily very personal and specific family matters. Some things only our spiritual father will know and only God, no one else. We must use discretion. We can call our brother in Christ and tell him that I may lose my job, I am concerned, pray for me, or I have this problem at work, or one of my children, or this other brother, I need some input, I need to talk about this, and I also need your prayer. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the earth produced its crops. Again, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Just like Prophet Elijah, even though he was just a man, just like us, with the weaknesses of the human nature, he was God-fearing and his prayer activated the power of God. So God will many times grant us a healing when others pray for us. Let's never forget to ask our sincere brothers to pray for us. Naturally, we will only share our problems with trustworthy, sincere, mature, spiritual brothers. We cannot emphasize this enough. What are the consequences of the poor people who share their innermost thoughts with anyone and everyone, their problems become public and they soon become the laughing stock and the joking matter of the entire community while complicating matters greatly. We must be very careful who we choose to share our feelings with. And finally, the final verse of the epistle of St. James, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner away from the wrong path will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. This is a beautiful verse which shows that we should not stay unmoved and apathetic when one of our brothers begins to go astray, and this could mean falling into a different dogma or heresy or when he's beginning to follow a lifestyle of sin. Both of these situations will lead to death, whether someone denies the triune God and follows a heresy, or whether he stays in the church but lives a life of sin, this soul will finally be led to death. The only thing it is that 
we should approach this falling brother extremely gently and very lovingly and always after a lot of prayer. We will approach the brother and mention to him, my brother, you are following the wrong path. Please be careful. And the results will be far greater if we run quickly before this person spends a long time in this wrong path because the longer he stays in the falsehood, the less are the chances for return. So when we help him to return to the truth, which means we help him return to Christianity, we help him to come back and start over again and adapt a Christian lifestyle. When we do this, we save his soul from death, from eternal death, a soul for which Christ died. This is our duty, not just the priests, but the lay people. The brothers must watch out to keep our eyes open. We must keep our eyes open. If one of our brothers begins to slip away, we must get involved along with the priest. We will fight to help this brother out. We must help save the soul of the brother from the path of delusion and death. And he will cover over a multitude of sins. And of course, in this process, a multitude of the sins of the brother would be covered over, meaning that he would no longer continue to sin. We will save him from a great number and years of living in sin. But according to Theophilactos and Ecumenios, also when we do this, when we help our brother return, we save his soul and we also save our soul from a multitude of sins. In other words, a multitude of our own sins will be covered because of this great act of love. And through the love of God, the love of St. James and Father Athanasius, we were able to complete this humble study for the glory of God. May God bless all of us.